This statement that Jesus makes is leading into Peter's greatest failure. Peter's going to be tested in a way that he never thought was possible. He's going to fail in a way that he never thought was possible. And I want to talk to you this morning about the reality that there are certain things in our life that we simply cannot progress forward in spiritually if we do not endure testing. I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Peter's been following Jesus for three years. He's been faithful to Jesus for three years. Jesus, at this stage in his ministry, I mean, Jesus is about to be crucified within 24 hours of this conversation. So the people have abandoned Jesus. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have put such pressure on the people that the people have begun to back off so there's not crowds that are really following Jesus like they used to be, at least not for the right reasons. And Peter and this very small group of people, they've been faithful to Jesus through it all. Everybody else has turned, but not them. And Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has demanded to have you. But I've prayed that your faith doesn't fail. You mean you, you, you're not praying that it doesn't happen? That's your prayer? Like you're, you're not going to stop it? And then he says, and when you have returned. So in other words, now you're telling me, no, no, so I'm going to turn away? I want you to put yourself in Peter's shoes. Not only would that conversation in and of itself be confusing, but the days that would follow would be really confusing for Peter. Now all of us, we know the story, those of you that raised your hand, you know that Peter eventually comes back. You know that Peter preaches this powerful sermon in Acts chapter 2 and thousands of people respond and are saved. You know that Peter plays the possibly the most significant role in the start of the first century church. So we know the end of the story. But Peter did not. And what I want us to look at this morning is Jesus' statement about how he's praying for Peter. And he says, ultimately, when it's all said and done, I want you to strengthen your brothers. So in other words, you're going to come out of this thing strong, and I want you to help others. I'm going to tell you guys the same thing I told the 9 o'clock service. And I had a man come up to me weeping at the end of the 9 o'clock service, gave me this big hug, shared with me some insight the Holy Spirit had showed him during the, the message. And this is what I said to him. I said, you're the 5% I was talking about. I showed up this morning to preach to 5% of the congregation. I don't do that very often. But I recognize that 95% of God's people don't really want to hear what I have to say this morning and are in denial of what I'm about to say. So Peter, right, one of the greatest of the apostles, after three years of serving God, is getting ready to go through the test of a lifetime. 
And that's because real spiritual leadership does require hard testing. You want to go deep with God? You want to be strong in the matters of the things of God? You're going to have to get enough guts about you to endure some testing and learn what it looks like to, if you will, face the devil face to face and, and, and go to war. Most people don't want to do that. Most people, what you want to believe, you just want, most Christians, 95% of you, you just want life to be good. You just want everything to be easy. You just want God to bless you. You just want food on the table, roof over your head. You want to be fat, happy, healthy, and wealthy. That's your version of blessed. And you never really grow deep in the things of God. Because to grow deep in the things of God, we have to learn how to endure testing. We have to recognize it was the divine, sovereign will of God that Peter went through this horrible time in his life. It was necessary to mold him into the holy man of God that he was not yet for what was to come later. And I'm going to tell you, there's about 5% of us that are willing to endure the testing. And this morning, I showed up to talk to you 5%. So be grateful this is your sermon today. Most people, I'll call them the 95%, they actually fail miserably in the time of testing, and they don't come back stronger. They leave the church. They waller in self-pity for years. There's people right now under the sound of my voice that even though you're here this morning, you're here out of obligation because you know you're supposed to be here, but you're still wallering in self-pity because somebody did you wrong 43 years ago at some little church somewhere and your feelings are still hurt. And you don't realize you have been beat by the devil. This little chip on your shoulder was part of his plan the entire time. Most people do not come out stronger. Most people come out much weaker. And so, how and why does Peter eventually come out stronger? Those of you that are ever going to be what I would call spiritual powerhouses for God, you're going to have to hear what I have to tell you this morning, and you're going to have to begin to live it. We all go through earthly trials, every one of us. If you are a saved Christian here this morning, there's not a single one of you that will not go through earthly trials. Most people just fail miserably and never come out stronger. But we all go through trials because it's part of the process. How do we come out stronger on the other side? How do we endure the assault of the devil, the attacks of hell, and eventually come out stronger? That's what I want to share with you this morning. And I'm going to do it in the form of principles. I'm going to call them five heavenly principles about our earthly trials. So, this morning, number one, you have to understand that Satan desires to make each of us question 
our loyalty to God. This is what Satan was ultimately after, was to get the disciples, not just to be sad. Satan doesn't just want you to be sad. Satan doesn't, when Satan inflicted Job with boils, or Job's family, and, and they died off, and then inflicted Job with boils, and when, when Satan did what he did to Job, his goal was to get Job to quit being loyal to God. It wasn't just to hurt him. It wasn't just to make him sad. It wasn't just so that Job would cry over there in a heap of ashes. There was a goal in mind. And the goal is to get God's people to question their loyalty to God. Now, this is a really interesting point in this text. So when Jesus says in verse 31... That Satan has desired you to sift you as wheat. The two times he uses the word you, it is in the Greek plural. So Jesus is actually talking about all the disciples. Sometimes we miss that in the text because in English, if we wanted to refer to everybody, we might add the word all, you all, or if you're a hillbilly, you just add them together with y'all, Y-A-L-L, y'all. So Jesus literally, if you want to understand the Greek, Jesus literally said, Peter, Satan is desired to sift you all. So we learn something about the enemy is that he wants each of us to question our loyalty to God. This word sifting is just the idea of taking wheat and shaking it down. It is, it is tearing it apart. He says, this is what Satan wants to do. And you need to understand something this morning, Christian. You have an enemy who is out to destroy your commitment to the living God. He wants you to question your loyalty to God. And you'll find there are different degrees to which people are willing to give up their loyalty to God. Sometimes people are only loyal to God so long as they believe that the punishment for not doing so is going to be really bad. But if they're convinced that it's really not going to matter too much, God's not going to strike me dead, all of a sudden they have reason to not be loyal to God. I'm going to sin, I'm going to do this thing, and then the God of grace, he has to forgive me. He's got no choice because he's God. And so I'm going to live in sin on purpose, I'm going to sin against God tonight, and then tomorrow God has to be gracious to me. See, you don't really, this is a person who chooses to not be loyal to God because, they're, because for them it doesn't even really pay to be loyal, and ultimately I'm not going to suffer if I'm not loyal to God. This is about the shallowest form of Christianity that you could find. It's a shameful form of Christianity, but it's where so many people live. Then you'll find that some people are not loyal to God because there's something that they desire and God has said no. No, you can't have that. No, you can't do that. But you desire it so much, you've decided that appeasing your own taste and your own desires and your own lust is more important to you than being loyal to God. I'm still talking about the shallows of Christianity where most people live. 
80% of the people on the sound of my voice, when you sin, it falls into one of those two categories. The disciples, like a very small, select group of people in God's kingdom, had gone a little further than that. But they weren't ready for what they were about to endure. And this is when you'll find, and this is where I'm talking to my deep spiritual people who have learned how to progress out of the shallows. Here's where you'll find you become really challenged and you begin to question your loyalty to God. Number one, in the place of confusion. You know, the Bible teaches us that Jesus repeatedly told his disciples about what was going to happen, but they didn't understand. Even in John chapter 2, when Jesus talked about them tearing down the temple and him raising it again in three days, John gives us this little nugget. We didn't really understand what he meant until after he rose from the dead. This is true repeatedly. Jesus is constantly telling his disciples, the Son of Man has to suffer. I'm going to be crucified. And even his disciples are like, well, I don't know. I mean, I know he's Jesus, but he's also Jesus. That's not going to happen. And they just kind of had this idea as they had watched him triumph. I mean, they watched the man walk on water. They watched him raise the dead back to life. They watched him literally cast out devils. And so in their mind, it just can't be that bad. And you'll find that when you, you've been faithful to God, as these disciples had, as Peter had, you've been faithful to God, you sort of have a picture in your mind of what that means going forward. So I've been faithful. God, I've been in your house. Lord, I've been in your word. God, I've been a man or a woman of prayer. I've got sin out of my life. I'm living holy. And therefore, what that means to me is that ultimately it leads to this place and this place and this place. But what happens is, is we find out that so very often what we envisioned happening as we were faithful to God, that's not what happens. And all of a sudden, the world falls out from underneath of your feet. And things outside of your control begin to happen. And all of a sudden, you're in the place of confusion. And when you add to that the next level of what the enemy will do to get us to question our loyalty of, to God, the next level of real persecution. So now I'm questioning, well, God, if I was faithful to you and I've been good to you, why would it come to this in my life where now I'm over here in this place of confusion and I, if I was going to end up denying you in the end, why did you call me in the beginning? It's a place of confusion. And then you add to that the fear that if you stay faithful to God in the midst of this, you're going to be crucified too. And Peter wasn't ready for it. You need to understand something. The devil has a mission to cause each of us to question our loyalty to God. And when you find yourself beginning to think about sinning against God, when you find yourself beginning to think about doing what you know God would not have you to do, you need to wise up and you need to recognize I'm in the middle of a very real spiritual battle here. And the devil's ultimate goal is to get me to question my loyalty to God. I ask you the question this morning, what are the things, what are the things the devil is trying to get you to question being loyal to God about in your life? He wants to destroy you. In 1 Peter chapter 5, 
Um, I'm just going to read verse 8. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The Bible teaches us this is our enemy. He's like a roaring lion that's just prowling around seeking someone to devour. You need to understand that the enemy of your soul is real. This is war, folks. And when I say that, This is what I mean by, honestly, 95% of the church does not want to hear it. They don't want to realize that their Christianity is a war. They don't want to think in that context. They want to think that it's all fluff, it's all cupcakes, it's all fun. You just come to church, you turn your life to Jesus, and everything's going to be good. This is the message, in one way or another, that has gone forth for the last several decades here in American Christianity. And it's not true. It's just simply not true. This is war. There is an enemy of our soul, folks. And he is relentless and he is ruthless. And you have got to understand his job is to get to question you, your loyalty to God. What does it matter to serve God now? If it's all going to end up bad, then why did I serve God all of these years? If it's going to be confusion and God's not going to protect me from this harm and from this pain, then what's the point of serving God? You will see the enemy will do whatever it takes to get you to question your loyalty to God. Number two, Second thing you've got to remember, the second principle you've got to wrap your heart and your mind around in your time of trial is this. Jesus Christ is interceding for us. He said, Satan's desired to have you, but I've prayed. He said, I'm praying for you. Romans 8, 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Look at this statement. Who indeed is is interceding for us. The Bible teaches us that Jesus is interceding for us. Now, to intercede, what it means is to intervene on behalf of another or to plead the cause for someone else. Have you ever thought about how amazing that is that in your time of trial, he says, Peter, I need you to remember something. When, when all this is going down and you're getting ready to go through the worst trial of your life, you need to remember these words, I am praying for you. And we're going to look at what Jesus prayed for in a moment. But let's just settle that in our hearts. He's interceding for us. I might be going through one of the most difficult seasons of my life and I'm in a place of confusion and I don't understand, God, why you're doing what you're doing. But I have to remember that Jesus is praying for me. That is mind-blowing to me. I mean, I pray for you. I'm assuming most of you folks pray for me. But the idea that Jesus is praying for me, I have to remember in that place of trial that he's praying for two reasons. Number one, obviously that gives me confidence. But number two, it also gives me strength to trust. It's okay that I am where I am. I mean, I don't understand, Jesus. Why didn't you just pray this didn't happen? I don't understand that. But I do understand this. You're praying for me in the midst of it. And that gives me a sense of patience through the test and through the trial to trust God with where I'm at. 
He said, I've prayed for you. In verse 32. Now, just a little side note that to me makes this passage very, very interesting. Because I, I want to look at what Jesus is praying for, but this is truly fascinating to me. So in verse 31, Jesus says, the Satan has desired you that he may sift you as wheat. And he uses the plural. So he says, Peter, Satan's desired to sift all of you. He's demanded ultimately to destroy all of you. And then here's what he says, but I have prayed for you. And when he says you, he switches to the singular. It's a very personal thing. And I want you to enter into that moment. Peter, Satan's desired to destroy all of you. But I've prayed for you, son, that your faith does not fail you. And when you have returned, you strengthen your brothers. This was the force of the conversation. And I want you to consider what Jesus prayed for for Peter. Notice he didn't pray that it wouldn't happen. You need to understand something about, listen, there's nobody that ever prayed better than Jesus. If you want to know what holy prayer is, we need to study the prayer of Jesus. You want to know what Holy Spirit anointed prayer is, we need to study the prayer of Jesus. You want to know what powerful prayer is, heavenly prayer, we need to study the prayers of Jesus. And it's worth noting that when Jesus is praying for what might be argued the greatest of all of his disciples, he's not praying that the guy prosper with health, wealth, and prosperity. He's literally praying that he's about to get sifted by Satan himself and that in that time, he doesn't roll over and die. The mind and heart of God concerning his people and the walk of faith is so vastly different than the garbage that has been peddled to us over the last several decades, folks. This is especially true if you want to come up out of the shallows of Christianity and come into deeper spiritual living where you walk with God and you hear the voice of God and you make a difference with your life in the kingdom of God. So Jesus prays, and I want us to look. There was really two specific things that he prayed for. He said that when it happened, he prayed, number one, that Peter's faith would not fail him. Ultimately, this was a test of faith. Are you going to be faithful? Are you going to turn and run when you find yourself in a place of failure, in a place of shame, what are you going to do then? He said, I'm praying that through it all, Peter, your faith does not fail you. That you remember through it all that I am good, that I am God, that I am in control. And he said, in addition to that, that when Peter returned, the second thing he prayed is that he would strengthen his brothers. His brothers would fail first. They would all leave first. Peter would try to stay a little bit closer. And Peter's failure would just be an hour or two behind the rest of his brothers. But Peter's failure would be on a whole other level. Peter would publicly deny him three times. Now, Peter was really like the leader of the disciples. And I want you to just think about the reality that if the rest of the disciples had already ran, the last hope they have is that Peter, their leader, 
He's not going to run. But then not only does he run, he publicly denies the Lord three times. There's just this great feeling of like we've all, we, it's done, it's over. We, we, we've all failed too much. If Peter would do that, if Peter would become such a coward that he would publicly deny the Lord three times, what in the world, what chances do we have of standing up against whatever we're all facing? And so Jesus says, Peter, when you're done with what you're going through, you're going to have to go back to these brothers of yours and you're going to have to strengthen them because they're going to need the strength that you're going to find. He did not pray that Satan would not sift Peter, but rather that Peter's faith would not fail him. Now here's an observation about faith that we cannot miss. God's concerned about our faith. That's ultimately what this was about. This was about developing faith in Peter. And you need to understand your faith is what the devil is after. The devil's not, the devil's not so much, the enemy of our soul is not so much about making us sick, as I've already said, or making us sad, or making us this. He wants us to question God. He wants us to question our loyalty to God. He wants us to give up on our faith. You have to understand this is the object of attack that the enemy is after in your life is your devotedness and your belief in God. Faith, if I was to oversimplify it and put it in a very short statement, here's what faith is. It's believing God to the point you obey God. It's believing God to the point you obey Him. Satan is after your faith. Number three. After remembering that Jesus is praying for us. Number three, the next principle you need to learn. Your greatest natural ability is often your greatest spiritual downfall. Your greatest natural ability is often your greatest spiritual downfall. Peter was overconfident in his loyalty. You know, Peter was like, you know, there's, there's some areas I might fail. Oh, I know. Sometimes I'm a little too brash. Might not come across as the most sensitive, forgiving guy you ever met. Sometimes I can be a steamroller of a man and just plow people over. I confess it. But there's one area I'll never fail. And that's my loyalty to God. I'm a tough warrior fisher of a man, and I would die before I would do that. You will find that there are certain areas in your life that you tend to, spiritually speaking, that you tend to think you can lean on your own natural talent and your own natural ability. And you will find that is the one area Satan will eventually exploit, and he will use that to bring about your greatest spiritual downfall of your life. When you and I start to think that there is ever any area, oh, I won't fail there, I'm too strong. You have taken the bait. It's such an important principle to learn. We can do nothing without Christ. This same night is when Jesus gave the the discourse that we find in John chapter 15, and Jesus was trying to teach this to Peter. Jesus said in John chapter 15, you you can do nothing. 
nothing without me. I am the vine, you're the branches. Anything you try to do apart from me, it won't work, it'll die. But Peter didn't hear it. Peter's convinced, look, I need Jesus in 99.9% areas of my life. But listen, this one little area over here, point one, oh, Peter's got this down. I know who I am. I'd, I'd die before I ever denied the Lord. <laughs> Maybe you cowards. But not me. Your greatest natural ability will often become your greatest spiritual downfall. And there is a lesson for those of us that want to go deep into the things of God. We must learn that we have to depend upon God, depend upon the leading of the Holy Spirit in absolutely everything that we do. And that concerning real spiritual matters, concerning spiritual warfare, I don't have anything to offer outside of Christ. I am no match for Satan. You are no match for Satan outside of Christ. Now, in Christ, we can do all things. But that's in Him and in Him only. And in Him alone. Peter had to learn this lesson. And apparently after three years, he hadn't learned it. Peter had learned what he was capable of doing. He was capable of casting out demons. He was capable of operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was capable of healing the sick. He was capable. He had experienced what it was to walk in the authority of God. But he still had yet to learn what he was not capable of doing. And that was anything in his own strength. Jesus knew this was necessary for Peter to learn. Jesus was going to allow Peter to fall so that he might learn how to truly trust on God in all things. Number four, very important point about learning how to come out strong on the backside of trials. There is a promise to believe in the midst of your trials. There is always a promise to believe in the midst of your trials. I want to turn your focus to five words that Jesus says in Luke 22, verse 32. He says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and, look at these words, when you have turned again. I want you to imagine Peter's state of mind. Could you just for try with me, to enter into Peter's mind and his heart in the days that followed after he denied Jesus. You know that he's wallowing in shame. You know that he's confused. You know that he's been awakened, that he wasn't quite the man he thought he was. He wasn't quite as strong as he thought he was. In fact, he could have never imagined denying the Lord, let alone Three times after being warned. And he's thinking to himself, not only am I not as strong as I was, I am far weaker than I ever knew. His confidence has been destroyed. He's living in shame. And he constantly hears these words in his mind. When I have returned. When I have returned. When I have returned. There's a turning point coming for me. Jesus told me this was going to happen, and sure enough, it happened. 
But he gave me this promise in the midst of it that there would come a day when I return and when I am strong again. And for many of us, when we find ourselves in the trial, it's like, well, when is it going to be? When is when? Lord, when do I come out of this? Lord, when does this season end in my life? And I cannot tell you when the season ends, but I can tell you this. I've been in this season myself, and we must learn during those times of confusion and chaos to trust on the promises that God has given us and allow them to give us the strength to keep going on one day at a time. That promise might be for you that the Lord has promised He's never going to leave you or forsake you. You are not alone. You might feel all alone right now, and this morning the Holy Ghost wants you to hear, you are not alone. God has not abandoned you. He has not forsaken you. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. There is always a promise to hold to. And you'll find that in the midst of that chaos... And that confusion when the devil's trying to sift you as wheat, he's doing everything he can to make sure you forget every promise God ever gave you. Instead, he's, he's whispering in your ear, yeah, God's really good. That's why you ended up here. Some work it is to pay, follow God pays off real well to be a Christian, doesn't it? He's doing everything he can to get you to question your faithfulness to God, to get you to question the promises of God. And in that moment, brothers and sisters, if you're going to be one of the five percenters that come out on the other side, you're going to have to learn to know the Word of God, to meditate on the Word of God, and to grab a hold of the promises of God in the midst of the most violent storms of your life and know that no matter what I'm going through, God is God. God is good. His word is true. And God is going to see me through this thing. There is a promise to believe. Final thing that I want you to learn this morning about enduring hardship. The fifth heavenly principle about our earthly struggles is this. The strength you gain is always meant to provide strength to others. The second thing that Jesus prayed for was that Peter would strengthen his brothers. In other words, it's bigger than you. It's indisputable that this was a big piece of Peter's life. It wasn't just about everyone else. No, 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 no. This was about Peter. There were some lessons Peter had to learn. There were some things that this breaking had to happen in his life to humble him so that he would become more usable and pliable in the hands of God. This was about Peter, but it wasn't only about Peter. No, 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 no. Jesus said when it's all said and done, you're going to take what you've learned and the strength that you've gained through it all and you're going to provide strength to your brothers. This is the truth about the hardships that we endure. That when we come back on the other side and we find strength and we know more and we trust more and we're more humble and and, and closer to God through it all, that that strength that we have, it is meant to help strengthen others. We see a similar concept with Jesus himself in Hebrews chapter 14. Look what it says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize 
with our weaknesses. But one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That passage is so beautiful, we could spend the next three weeks on it. Here's what it says in simple terms. Jesus experienced everything we've experienced, yet without sin. But the temptation to sin, the temptation to give up, the temptation to question his loyalty to God, all of it. And flawlessly, he said no every time. So you and I don't even really understand the extent to which he said no to sin. Because we have given in instead and not been that faithful. So whatever degree of temptation we've experienced, Jesus experienced it on a whole other level. Therefore, therefore, he can sympathize with us. And we should be able to go like boldly to the throne of grace and ask for help and mercy because Jesus can sympathize with us. He knows what it's like. That's what Hebrews is telling us. It's a very similar concept to what's being ha- happening in Peter's life right here. Let's just imagine that Peter hadn't failed. Let's just imagine he was the one disciple. You realize that the, the, the connection with the rest of the disciples never would have been the same after that? Imagine old Peter trying to, trying to encourage the other brothers. You guys aren't failures. You can do this. And they're thinking, well, yeah, sure, you say that, Peter. Because you don't know what it is to be us. You didn't fail like we did, man. You don't know the shame I feel. You don't know the pain. You don't know the regret. Those are just empty words. You see how sometimes when we go through these things, it actually enables us to to find connection and ability to actually help others and strengthen others? And you know when I understand that? It doesn't necessarily make the trial fun. But I realize there's a bigger purpose to it all. And that through it all, God's using this to increase my faith. I want to close with one interesting thought. So one thing that I think is indisputable is that this particular event has to deal with spiritual strength. Jesus is telling Peter, when you get better, you're going to have the strength to help your brothers. And so give some of your strength to them. Strengthen them. This is about strength. And so I want to ask the question, how and why? To some monumental attack, how does that provide strength? Why does that provide strength? And I'm going to argue it provides a type of strength that can never be found anywhere else. Now here's why. You'll follow me. I'm wrapping all this up. Remember the ultimate attack is against our faith, yes? Right? That's what the devil's after. He's after your faith. That's what God's after. God's after your faith. That's, that's the piece that we're, we're dealing with here. And here's just the reality. It doesn't take a lot of faith to live up on the mountaintop. It just doesn't. I love the mountaintop just as much as anybody in here. It's way more fun. But it just doesn't require a lot of faith up there. 
I mean, faith is believing God for what you don't see. Faith is trusting God in, in uncertain circumstances. And in order for faith to really become active, I must be put in situations where I have nothing but my faith. And everything around me that I see doesn't make sense. Everything that I feel doesn't really make sense. And now it's there and there only that I learned some things. Because previously, when I was up on the mountaintop, when I heard that God was the God who provides in the face of lack, I'm like, well, that's a pretty neat concept. Oh yeah, that's my God. Previously, when I was up and everything was well and I had no aches and I had no pains and, and, I, and I need healed of nothing, the idea that the Lord's the, the Lord that heals us, well, that sounds pretty cool. That's a great concept. That's the God that I serve. But when I'm in the valley and all of a sudden I'm in need, when I'm living, let's just say when I'm up on the mountain, and I know that none of us are perfect, so don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But when I'm up on the mountaintop, and for the most part, I'm serving God. I'm in the Word of God. I'm, I'm living like I should be for the most part. This God of grace and mercy, He's really just a concept to me. But you wait till you blow it. And you know you blew it. You sinned against your God. And all of a sudden, shame starts to take over. It's not just a concept anymore that he's a God of mercy and a God of grace. He's the only hope that you've got. And sometimes it's in that place in the valley that I actually learn. He's, these aren't concepts. These aren't just clever names. This is who God is. And in this place of failure and in this place of confusion and in this place of what seems to be imminent defeat, I've got nothing I can do but trust my life in the hands of an almighty God. I've got to believe that He's capable to do what I cannot. I've got to believe that His grace is sufficient to cover the mess that I've put myself in. I've got to believe that his love for me transcends the worst of my sins. I have nothing to do but trust on God. And brothers and sisters, it's in that place a lot of times we come to know him for who he is. And it's no longer a concept. It's no longer an idea. But I see him for who he really is. How desperately I need him. And that, that makes me strong. You know, there's something that happens in the heart of somebody like Peter, and I pray the Holy Spirit will help me explain this as I close. You know, Peter was a loyalist. Loyalty mattered to him. In his mind and in his heart, he would die before he ever turned his back on Jesus. And then Peter turns, you know the story. And through that whole time, he's thinking, but Jesus said, when, when, when I return. I want you to notice something. There's two things very important here this morning that I want you to notice about this promise that when Peter returns. Number one, number one, Jesus knew that Peter was going to suffer, but he would not relinquish Peter of the suffering. Number two, he knew that Peter was going to fail, and do not miss this, folks. But he would not release him from his leadership responsibilities. 
He says, when you return, you still got a job, son. Get to work and strengthen your brothers. Now, to somebody like Peter, who's a loyalist, I want you to imagine this feeling while he's out there and he's ashamed of what he's done. And there's this realization that when I'm not loyal to him, he's still loyal to me. It should be the other way around. I should be the one that's loyal to him, and he has no reason to be loyal to me. But the truth is, the roles are reversed. And that even when I'm not loyal to him, he is loyal to me. And I'm going to tell you something. When you realize that, that even when I, my faith fails, God remains faithful. That when I get trapped up and I buy into the, I, I fail and I, I become caught in the devil's vices in my life, God does not discard me and throw me away, but he remains faithful to me. He is loyal to me through it all. Even though I had a lapse of loyalty to him, he remains faithful and loyal to me. And here's the thing, when you really, truly, when you understand that, for somebody like Peter, when, his, when that hit his mind and it hit his heart and he realized that the very God he was not loyal to has still been loyal to him. It does something in a man like Peter's heart when you come to that realization and it begins to provide this certain degree of strength that says, I'm going to give this another go. I'm going to get up and I'm going to serve Jesus. And there came that moment. It was amazing for Peter. So the worship team begins to get in place this morning. Peter, P- Peter was looking for that moment, but he didn't know when it was going to be. This is the way God works. You would have thought, right, that it was like real calculated. Peter's going to go through his time of beating himself up. He's going to go through his time of trying to get his life back right. And then he's going to humbly approach Jesus. That was kind of probably Peter's, that was probably, probably how the way he had it written out. Instead, he's out fishing with some of his disciples and he sees Jesus on the shore. And he jumped, like, that was it. That, that was the moment. That was it. He jumps out of the boat. Instead of rowing over, he jumps out and swims to where Jesus is. And that was the moment that everything changed in his life. This morning, I want to encourage you. If you've been, you've been running You've been wallowing in self-pity. You've been wallowing in defeat. I want to encourage you this morning. When is when in your life? Return. You need to know that Jesus loves you beyond words that I could ever express. And he stands with arms wide open. Just come. Just come. Just come. Don't lay there in, 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 in defeat. Don't lay there in, in self-pity. Just come. 